the Andrew special. You liked it so much, you decided to come back for more. I liked it so much, I decided to buy the company. (laughs) Wow, yeah, that's really good. I don't even have a response for that. (laughs) Oh, my. So, on this fine, fine morning, what do you find yourself thinking about? Well, like most mornings, I wonder, how am I going to say something original when everything's been said? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. AKA, I want to be famous. I want to do something cool, but everyone already took all the cool things. Everybody used all the notes. They used all the notes. They painted all the pictures. They've used all the colors. They've said all the words. They've made all the movies. I agree. Yeah. I take some comfort in the fact that basically every composer has thought the same thought. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, well, okay. So, and that's, uh, so you, you, the ones we write about, the, the composers we talk about and we write about and we read about and study about have all, the reason why they're in the book quote-unquote book is because whoa look at what this person did and look how revolutionary it was and then again you kind of think about how many composers were there what's the ratio of like mozart to his contemporaries in every generation yeah man you're just gonna make me depressed all at once (laughs) you know what it's 6 12 a.m and i'm already feeling bad about myself see and you know what if if i can it's like the five stages of grief you know (laughs) denial acceptance depression acceptance or whatever and if i can get you to the acceptance that's the goal but if i can get you depressed at least i'll have done my job you'll you'll take it (laughs) yeah if we can get at least that far. <laughs> wow, Cam, like, uh, with friends like you, you know? I do what I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it helps to have a cool name. That also is good. I mean, if you, hmm. can't, if you can't write excellent music, you can at least have a really cool name. Yeah. I mean, having like, both would be great. Like Serge Rachmaninoff. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of like a rock and roll off your tongue kind of name. Yeah, but it, yeah, exactly. That's why, like, rock and roll. Even, yeah, that's why even people like my dad know who he is. Yeah. Yeah, anything that is called The Rock 2 (laughs) has got to be cool, right? I mean, yeah, it's a movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and a piano, a, uh, a rock monoff piece. Yeah. I mean, it's even better than The Rock 1, and clearly Clearly. that even has a good name. It's one of the rare things when the sequel is better. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're not talking about Star Wars, are we? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, no. (laughs) We are not. I was just thinking about Joskin, too. Yeah. What is he, Sting? Joskin. Yeah, that's true, right? Or Prince. Prince. Yeah, I mean, it helps to have a cool name. Yeah. Like, you can't be like Bob of Normalville. <laughs> I actually have been to Normalville. Is it's, that a place? Yeah, no, it's not. Oh. But 
I thought it was in Idaho. <laughs> Idaho is Normalville, the whole wow. the whole place. Bob the Unremarkable from Idaho. You just yeah. don't you don't have a lot going for you if that is I mean, you better be writing something really spectacular to overcome your name. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of like things like Post Malone. Like his name is Gregory Malone or something like that or mm. something. So then Post Malone just sounds really cool. So, you, you know, it's the whole stage name persona kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Because then it's memorable, and then people will pay attention to your music more carefully. And then it's like, oh, wait, he actually did write something cool. Yep. Yep. So what do you do then? Like, as a composer, what do you do? Since all the notes, I mean, clearly, all the notes have been written. Eric Whitaker wrote them all. So, In one giant shimmery cluster. Yeah, he actually, it's amazing. The whole history of western classical music culminates in one moment and he used it all (laughs) (laughs) it's in when david heard (laughs) wait a minute i just figured out you can put all of the notes together (laughs) oh it's so real so what do you do then and nothing against it that's a great oh no it's genius it's genius especially in the voice with voices yeah. Because it's such a cool color, you know? Yeah, I mean, taking, you know, both of your forearms and your neighbors and and laying them out across the piano <laughs> to play all of the notes. Um, you know, it's one thing to give every note to a, somebody in the orchestra and they can all play a different note and feel really great about it where they don't have to <laughs> right. sing against each other all the time. But it, yeah. it's actually, it's, you know, I think uh, the the golden brick for that piece, the mm-hmm. kind of contribution and something that Whitaker brought to the table was making it easy and singable to get in and out, in and out of the cluster harmonies. Right. And, um, you know, it, it's good voice leading. That's such when, good counterpoint. It's like ridiculous. About, yeah. I mean, you could make it really, really hard for people to sing that kind of sonority, or you can make it easy for them. Right. Love you for it. You like have the Poulenc version of it or the Whitaker version of it. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And they both have their merits on different mornings. Oh, yeah. 100%. Well, I don't know. It's kind of a curious thing because um, I think there's something in the creative impulse, in the human spirit that wants to make stuff, period. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think people, most people who want to make stuff want to make something that's different from all the other stuff they've seen. Yeah. Not all the time. I mean, I, mean, I think there's something, and maybe that's a very Western idea. And mm. here we are talking about early music through a Western frame. I think, like, you know, there might be a more humble or uh, less ego-driven idea of making things to disappear into them or to to not. Mm be different in in sort of like an eastern ethos yeah sure that's kind of worth keeping in mind i think but a lot of people who make stuff want to make it uh i don't know different than what you know bob from normalville next door made (laughs) so boring seriously and so you i guess you kind of oh man (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) Uh, just all these (laughs) 
All parallel fifths, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the most, like, revolutionary um, uh, concept of, in, in the time we're talking about. But Yeah, and the thing I can't tell about Bob is if he's, like, still, you know, wonking out on parallel organum or if he's, like, really into Nirvana, you know? Because you got parallel fifths. It's Nothing's basically the, the it's basically the I'm same saying. thing. To to yeah. to quote our last guest last week, Philip Lasser, nothing has changed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, ask Dave Grohl. Yeah, yeah, the Foo Fighters and the Nirv- and Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so here's here's the thing. Never mind, Bob. Point is that. I think you like people want to make something that's uh, that's new. We have uh, sometimes I think we have sort of a surface level artificial fascination with novelty for its own sake, but I think sometimes we have an organic uh, human interest in making things that are just different that haven't existed before, and it, it, it all depends on the resources and inspirations you have lying around next right. door. Um, right. But if you see, uh, you know, if if you're in a creative community, so to speak, associating with other people, you almost feel bad just copying other people because that, that doesn't feel like what you're up to. And so then you're left to say, okay, how do I, how do I draw on all this inspiration and yet make it a little bit my own? And maybe even if you don't have such an ego-driven specific idea to make something your own i think that what happens is if you're internalizing the stuff that you love and you happen to have your own heartbeat and brain chances are you're going to eventually add a link to the chain yeah yeah i agree and as you're talking it makes me think of in my glory days the peak of my entire career was the band that i formed in high school called mellow funk Mellow Funk Dramatic was the name of Whoa. our band. Did you and sing? Did you play? What did you do? I played the drums and sang. We were we were out there, man. And then just one guitarist and one bassist, and then I I was the drummer singer. And okay, uh, respectable. We, we didn't play live very often, but we recorded a, and wrote songs like a crap ton of them, and we were just all the time. Go for quantity, like that. Yep, always. And I loved, and see, I was just such a, that ego thing. I didn't like, I didn't care about like getting the glory. I just like, it had to be the way that I wanted it, you know? And so I'd kind of steamroll my bandmates sometimes, but they didn't care because they weren't very, they were just having fun. And I was like, we're going to make it big. When really all I was doing is basically rewriting Red Hot Chili Pepper songs, <laughs> mm. because I because I loved it so much I was just like you said I was copying, and when I first started composing it was the same kind of thing I had a couple of, um, uh, there's a, a lady who's, a CEO of uh, she was a CEO of, big 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 oil her name's Liz Wiseman. She's mm-hmm. amazing, but she she writes a book called Rookie Smarts. Okay. And so in my in my first kind of 
dabbling into choral composition, I had some rookie smarts, beginner's luck. I look back at those two two or three pieces I wrote at BYU-Idaho, it's like, whoa, that's really good. You know, and there's some little things. But then as I as I kind of make my way forward a little bit, I can see myself falling back into my mellow funk of dramatic days of, it's like, well, I want to write a piece like this. And I it's basically the same because I because I didn't have the tools to do it yet. I was just going on my own. And I, I wanted to recreate that aesthetic but with something new. But I didn't even know how to do it So because I, I, I wasn't, like you said, I wasn't, Anyway, I had that desire, but I didn't know how to do it, really. Yeah, but but think about it. You know, uh, if you had been, I don't know, uh, a painter, you know, in the Flemish. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's my favorite. That is the best. I wish I was Flemish. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some some mornings I wake morning. up when it's dry. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. Oh, my. <laughs> Oh, we are what if, what if, I mean or, or an artist of any kind pre-university based training yeah you would have you would have copied first sure right you would, have, you would have apprenticed yourself with somebody who was doing whatever art it was at a higher level than you could and establish yeah. a, a master and you would be copying their work. I mean, a lot of painters, are, you know, early in their careers were just glorified copy machines. Yeah, true. Right. And I feel like, how do you how do you actually internalize a craft? Well, that's what you do. You copy, 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 because really it's only um, doing it, going through the motions and, and getting rapid feedback from somebody who's better than you are. Right. That eventually helps you have the tools so that you can do something original so yeah i think what you know what's broken these days is we have this we combine a fascination like a cultish fascination with originality Mm -hmm. with a training system in universities that doesn't really do mentoring apprenticeship like apprenticeships type yeah, I mean, you, you show up to university and they say, well, okay, so you're going to take four semesters of theory and uh, optionally throw in a counterpoint class if you want to do that as an elective. Ah, hey, you could do Pro Tools or <laughs> right. uh, throw in some <laughs> private lessons, probably with a different teacher every semester. And poof, yeah. at the end of this, you'll have a piece of paper. That's for sure. <laughs> but otherwise, no guarantees. And yeah, <laughs> the I mean, I've, I actually I, that's kind of facetious, but I think it's true. You wind up with this yeah. like, collection of random stuff rather than showing up with okay, some raw talent, right? You gotta mm-hmm. you gotta be interested and capable to be taking taken on as an apprentice in somebody's studio. And the if we're talking music, and if we were talking, you know, whatever, um, I'm thinking about Im, um, Image and Holst. Mm. daughter of Gustav who is um, I, I think she was I mean she's a very very fine composer exquisite yeah. exquisite music uh, well she was the what's the word, fancy word for uh, copyist like amun- <laughs> whatever she was a copyist for Benjamin Britten <laughs> if I remember oh that. wow and you know you, you, you spend enough 
hours and days of your life copying mm -hmm. from somebody who is a master contrapuntist and you know think about like all of the examples of this and and even in sort of the older conservatory traditions copy yeah copying copying you get the credit of you it's not showing up to learn about music right from this syllabus and then that syllabus and then that syllabus and right. you just like binge and per cycle for all of the exams you you sit down and you start copying so you can internalize yeah the craft so i say you know if, yeah with your, with your little uh neil pert rush trio <laughs> trying to play red hot chili peppers <laughs> copy on we, man we would have been great you know we would have kept going well yeah our bassist was a really good songwriter too but oh nice oh my headphones fell out what is happening okay i'm back i missed you oh thank you it feels good <laughs> to be missed <laughs> but uh so so then in copying but see that's my question though is because i expect well i don't know i i tend to see it because we, we've talked about this off air several times about when there's nothing left to be said, in order to create something new, you have to rediscover something really old. Or maybe not really old, but something old. And the the I can see that throughout time, but really the time I see it the most significantly is that 20th century neoclassic with Stravinsky, neo-Renaissance, neo-medieval, all of those types of things. Sure. But but it definitely happens throughout all other time periods too. There's I mean it's it might not be as stark of a difference between what was contemporary at the time versus the hearkening back as as it may have been in you know Mozart's day or Beethoven's day, or Brahms's day, Mahler's day. But anyway, well, yeah, I mean, think about it. So um, you can't. There's no way to to separate human evolution. I'm not talking like genetics. I'm talking about like the development of right. culture and these kinds of things from the development of of music. But you you think okay, so let's situate ourselves back in like I don't know. You know, post Boethius, not we, we always want to give a nod to Boethius, right? But, right? but post Boethius, let's say that we're in the like, you know, mid 800s, 900s, and we finally had this kind of landslide accomplishment of some notation. Yeah. Uh, hey, that's pretty cool. But things are just pivoting out of monophony into what I think, you know, Philip Lasser would call multiple monophony, where it's sort mm. of like proto-polyphony, where we yeah. have this sense that two things can be happening at once, kind of. Right. Um, but, you know, what is, what qualifies, what constitutes new then? Well, yeah. you know, you've got this like parallel organum, right? You've got a single line, but we're going to do it in parallel, perfect consonances. Yeah. And hey, that's fresh. 
I mean, yeah, that, that sounds really cool, especially when before that point you didn't, you kind of didn't have the the means of capturing it on paper to sort of do it over and over again and share it from one place to another. It was it was purely, um, you know, an oral tradition, right? But then along comes the uh, the third. <laughs> Dude, that third, I tell you what, man. The world literally w- was never the same. Yeah, but think about how long it, you know, uh how long it took to to uh, sink in, right? Because you um as long as you were doing single lines, it's one thing to have a skip of a third melodically. Right. And it, you know, they we we had this sort of sensibility for putting together um a sequence of notes that was pleasing and that's cool um you see the development of like notre dame organum which is a a less parallel <laughs> a less right a less nirvana <laughs> kind of guitar part uh but it isn't really until you get later medieval um when and sort of uh, like you think about Tangoris running the 400s and this new birth of humanism and recovery after a plague. Hey, recovery after a plague. Woo! Hey, and it's they like... Start, let's, let's, let's trust our ears. You know that third that's been waiting on this, in, the, in the wings for you know, a century or whatever, <laughs> popping up here and there in Machot and Dunstable and all this These kind of stuff. These insane individuals. These wild innovators. <laughs> Let's just admit the third in full fellowship because it sounds good to the ear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I have no words. <laughs> because well, you know, cuz again, you know, but 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 it's kind of like what Philip said where it's like they they knew what that sounded like because of the spaces they were singing this in. So when you talked about the melodic skip of a third, they heard a harmonic third because of these giant spaces with this amazing lag or uh, like reverb time. It's like, yeah, that that third existed harmonically for sure. Right, and if you're, and, sing- and if you're singing by ear into a just intonation, chances are that that third will manifest itself in the overtone series right but you know how do you say something new in the 1400s well with a third (laughs) it is just i don't know if i don't know if we're allowed to talk about this i mean we're gonna get so much flack for talking about thirds i mean yeah yeah (laughs) I know. So much in wild. It's speaking okay, side note, speaking of the third, I will tell you though, every time I hear Talus if you love me, I do not want to hear that third at the end. Cuz oh. it's not there. I want to hear open fifth. Mm. And every even the Talus scholars add the third, and I'm just like, "Wait. Wait. Wait." But I heard the Queen Six sing it, and they left it open, and I... Oh, did they? I felt victorious. Wow, wow. Anyway, speaking of well, fifths I, and open thirds. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you would you would think that the thing to do would be to close down the harmony to the perfect consonants, and that would be the the restful, pure way of resolving it. Yeah. Um, but, anyway, you know, I digress. This is all a digression. We're making a podcast <laughs> about early music before seven a.m. on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, we are not, life digression. You're not doing this for the money. <laughs> I mean, well, I wasn't going to tell you, but I get paid Wait, is, is a there money lot. In this? I get paid so much money. From that sweet sponsorship? Yep. The sponsorship of... This episode brought to you by <laughs> Musica Ficta. I wish 10% I knew. off at www.musicaficta.com. I wish I knew what William Byrd and Thomas Tallis's like publishing company was called off the top of my head because they would pay me buku bucks too, I bet. Yeah, yep. Anyway. Well, and, and all the sweet merch from like, you know, the, the Tallis sweatshirts and stuff. Dude, we should maybe do that actually. That'd be hilarious. I yeah, you know, I'm really reluctant to wear brands. Like, I, I feel like, like, what am I, a billboard for your company? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. My job, my job stopped at the moment I bought the T-shirt, you know? Right, exactly. There, there are a handful of brands I, I rep. I, I proudly wear my Nonesuch Records uh, hat. Nice, yes. What's left of it now. Uh, right. The dog got it. It doesn't, it isn't. Oh, that's sad. But I, it, I would it wear looks it. I think it looks classy. It's that rustic kind of like kind of grunge, but still classy that is coming back into style. Is it coming back into style? Because we had a conversation offline. We have some of those, you know, yeah. about baseball caps. And yes. uh, I uh, I went to high school in the late 1990s, which for those of you keeping track is in the last millennium. Whoa. And uh, you Whoa. can't, could not wear a flat brimmed baseball cap. <laughs> In a high school? No, that was, uh, you were definitely given a wide berth in the hallways around you yeah, if you I did mean, that. You, you took your hat, and the first thing you did when you bought it was start baseball glove. You season it, bend that, and then even though it's new, it somehow magically looks like it's been, you know, worn for. 15 years maybe by like your older sibling or something and you just yep. happen to stumble on this way cool worn in yeah bent brimmed hat anyway i would totally wear a thomas tallis t uh sweatshirt yeah yeah with uh dead compose hashtag dead composer society on the back you know there you go the tallis tallis yeah but delasus for president yeah that ooh. Delasus 2024 that's a good one that's a way good one. Yeah. You know, I could see that. But yeah. speaking of Talus, so we fast yeah, we forward. Should, we should well, speak about Talus. Yeah. Because, man, it's just something. Okay. Well, anyway, it, we talk about, and we've, again, several off-air conversations about Talus's spem in Allium. Because, again, if we fast forward past the organum and get in past the parallel monophony, get into, okay, well, we've been creating new. It's just taken us forever because the world was slower back then in terms of progression for whatever reason. But then the Wi-Fi speeds were terrible. 
Yeah, and they were still using dial-up. It was obnoxious. They had to, yeah. But then you get to polyphony. Whoa. Tense. And then thick polyphony. And then, holy cow, we're not just doing 8, 12-part polyphony. We are doing 40-part polyphony because why not? I think okay so if we're going if the the line that we're trying to trace here is how do you say something new when everything's been said it's kind of a kind of in some ways i guess it's the natural progression maybe not inevitable but you know you you look at uh how the baton is passed from like you know the, the mass shows and the dunstables and dufayes and Juskin and palestrina and stuff well i mean yeah. not palestrina because that's sort of contemporary with talus but you you right. look at how how things land with talus and now at that point you have a system for managing multiple parts we have this thing called polyphony we have these pleasing intervals permission to use all sorts of consonances um it's not tonal yet because we got the world hasn't collapsed down into the, the the sort of the specified spacing and doubling and dance moves of common practice but it's kind of tonal it's right. pleasingly it's pleasing right and so you play this game where you say like okay so two parts cool three parts cool four parts nice five parts six parts yeah okay seven parts eight parts yeah and then it gets to be a little bit of a uh uh you know it's it it's kind of like layering more and more spaghetti sauce on your spaghetti or something right because you're like you know a little bit's good a lot a little bit more is better i mean hey that's what i think i think i think pasta is just a vehicle for sauce you can fight me <laughs> you can fight me if i if you, if you want <laughs> but um yep but once you get to the 40th scoop of sauce <laughs> Can you actually tell the difference between 35 scoops and 40? I argue that you can't. Nope. And I mean, here, here's the thing. Like, what if Spem had been 41 parts? We wouldn't know the difference. It's hey, come it on. had it had reached a sort of theoretical saturate super saturation of polyphony. Right. And uh, I mean, you know, if you really think about it, a piece like that actually does reduce into much fewer moving right. pieces. Harmonically, it's a little bit more like micro polyphony that you see later on in Ligeti and things like this, where right. you say, okay, overall, the harmonic structure reduces to something, but we're going to decorate it elaborately, mm-hmm. where one voice, so to speak, is actually multiple voices kind of humming and buzzing around. Um, a core harmonic idea but the point is i think that okay so you reach this super saturation in works like that where you say okay given the given our preferences for consonants and 
distance and something has to give yeah. you can't just keep adding more parts right uh, so it's well because think about like well think about what those other composers like <clears throat> we're, we're all in this you know composer uh kind of set up group of colleagues and it's like oh yeah that's An andrew's doing some cool stuff over there and then there's oh yeah yeah and that guy's doing this and then whoa andrew just wrote a 40 part motet huh well now they, what uh, well they all take their quills and break them angrily over their knees <laughs> yeah. i'm done this is terrible yeah. it's like oh, I... yeah have you seen the movie the prestige no, I haven't seen that one. Anyway, they're do it's these two magicians battling, and the one magician, Christian Bale's character, sees Hugh Jackman's character like do this the best trick he's ever seen. He goes, "All right, we're done. Pack it up." And he like throws the brochure. We're done. It's like I just imagine <laughs> all the other composers after Talos' spam of, "We're done." Crumple up their staff paper, throw their quills. Now what? Because well, what do you? Because what do you do? Like, there's no more. There's nothing. You can't come back from that with like a six part motet and say, "Ooh, but this one's cooler." I mean, right. we can look at that now and say that might be true. Post spam and volume six, four, eight, seven, three part motets. Whoa, this is really intricate and does kind of explore a new idea. But and in the at the time. When that's happening in real time, you can't do that because you don't have the luxury of everything that's happened after it to to filter. Right. So I think what do you do? You if you're not if you can't get any more bang for the buck by adding a forty first voice, I think what you do is you start poking at consonants and dissonance. Yeah. And, you know what what leads us out of polyphony effectively? I I think is. New per, new preferences for consonants and dissonance, right? And right, uh, when you look at the language, so fast forward a short generation into the language of Bach, and Bach has inherited modal tunes, mm -hmm. but he's grounded in an emerging tonal world, right. And when you think about his chorale settings, he's doing tonal yeah. settings of modal tunes. Yeah. Um, that's when that's when our perception of consonants and dissonance in this kind of um, emergence of tonality becomes how you say something new when all of the notes have been used up in spam. Right. And that and that is a true hearkening back to monophony, I mm. think. I think because of, okay, in in terms of looking back to take one aspect, right? Because that's usually what happens, like with Stravinsky's neoclassicism or whatever. There's like one aspect of it that they take and then they take this wide field that's about this deep, an inch deep, and a foot wide, and they make it, an inch wide and a foot deep mm. uh, in that aspect, exploring like the deepest bowels of that singular concept. Well, I think what happened over the course of the centuries leading into common practice, um, you know, which we think of as kind of beginning in the Baroque, that, that mm -hmm. ha the baton handoff between Renaissance and Baroque, I think what happened is that we developed conventions for 
um, which notes should be doubled and why. Mm. And if you think about a two voice, two you know a two voice uh, polyphony can't be tonal, right? Um, not in a functional sense, and even a right. three three voice polyphony can't really be tonal in a true tonal sense because you might have a succession of uh, triads of thirds and sixths, all these pleasing intervals, but which note, which of the three is the root, so to speak, is the grounding, right. the heavy, the orienting point. Yeah. It's not until you have four voices when think about it you have a tri triad you have three notes is sort of like the the admit the seventh but if wait you, say, if you have, say that one more time you okay, kind of so like went in and out like the internet connection was weird i don't know what i uh, bermuda triangle uh, don't call again no, so we have this like um, wonderful asymmetry, this kind of weirdness where yeah. triad, a three-note simultaneity, a th three-pitch simultaneity, where if you if you know that you have perfect consonances of say a fifth or its mm -hmm. junior neighbor the fourth, and you have a per and you have an imperfect but admissible consonance of a third, you put those together, you have a triad. And that is the maximum saturation of consonants in right. the length at that moment. But that's right. a three-pitch phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And when you add, if you have three voices and three pitches, not it's impossible to say which of those three voices is the most important, is like the grounding voice. Right. But as soon as you have four voices and three pitches, you have a new world because there's going to have to be a logic for which of those three mm. pitches is doubled. And yeah. the logic for which dub which pitch gets doubled as you move into move through the Renaissance, that starts clarifying. And you hear like a piece like If You Love Me, you brought that up. Yeah. It has nearly common practice sensibilities for doubling. Yeah, totally does. Right? It is. It isn't literally tonal, but it's awfully close. It's proto-tonal yeah. in a way. But then once you get to Bach, and moving forward, we have a, a well-articulated system for which note gets doubled and conventions for how do you space them, and and that is how you, how tonality is born if you have right. if you if you uh and, and you have these you know emerging ideas about uh key signatures that sort of like clarify themselves because previously we had this like ficta idea we had this right you know, sometimes you need to raise a note so that you avoid the yucky interval right <laughs> um but now that's going to take on a whole new shape and right so you know how do you say something new when everything's been said well post talus you start getting chromatic yeah. You start getting tonal, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Bach, bless his savant mind, <laughs> um, showed us like the entire lexicon of chromatic possibilities. Right. Uh, like we, we've, 
like way beyond the little baroque box that <laughs> we want to put him in. Uh, by like a million percent. Yeah, yeah. But then you look at it and say, okay, so chromaticism then became became how you say something fresh and new for a couple hundred years. Like if you were in the 1700s, 1800s, you were basically pushing chromatic, you're right. pushing on the chromatic envelope, right? right. In order to, to add a link to the chain. And that was right. true, I think, really up until the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Because you look at Strauss, Ricard, not the waltzy one, the other guy. The waltzy one was, you know, it's whatevs. But think about Strauss. I mean, like born mid 1800s, died mid mid 1900s. And uh, it's wild to me. So he was, Richard Strauss was modern music when my great grandmother was alive. That's so crazy. She was born, so my great grandmother was born 1896. Wow. I knew her, right? So I'm one handshake away from just before the turn of the 20th century. And by the time she was born, Strauss was in his 30s. That is wild. And you think about the the wild growth of chromaticism, almost like reaching sort of absurd proportions, both right. in, the, in the number of people on the stage, in the number of chromatic notes being used all at once, and there you go again. Right. You reach this moment of like, oh, well. This spem moment of yeah, chromaticism. It's kind of, yeah. I like he used all the notes. <laughs> and every every person in our city is on stage. Who's in the audience? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't make any more instruments. We don't even have enough instruments. That guy back there is playing his body. He's hitting his torso. It was electrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh! Wow. <laughs> Dude, boom. All, all of Face. this all of this before 7 a.m. <laughs> what a day. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking in a mere number of minutes I'll have to wake my kids up and get them ready for school and they won't know that we've been talking about <laughs> Waves of saturation and the desperation of creative people who want to say something new. But that yeah. moment when Strauss used all the notes, and I'm using that kind of, I'm generalizing, but but you think about it, people on the scene in the late stages of chromaticism who wanted to say something new, what did they do? Well, they started disassembling the conventions of chromaticism that had right. accumulated since the Baroque. Yeah. And I think oftentimes they were looking back to look forward. I think yeah. uh, you can, you know, you look at all the different routes that you can go sort of post functional uh, chromatic functional harmony. Mm -hmm. You've got a Stravinsky neoclassical route. You had a Bartok um, sort of, folk inspired um fully chromatic but not 12 tone serial right route like oddly <laughs> oddly 12 tone right but not with, with its really. own sort of like elegant mathematical logic you had right. a Debussy route 
which was let's take the syntax of uh let's take the conventions of chromaticism let's take those uh thirds but let's loosen the syntax yeah very much like the poetry he was setting it had like a right. um surrealist maybe not surreal from like an art history sensibility but like it, it was let's let's loosen all those rules but still use words that people recognize mm, and then yeah. you take then you had the schoenberg route which is no let's take all of the pieces apart and shake them up and um uh pull the notes out of the hat in an order that is definitely definitely not yeah functional and let's put them back together to see what we get and i think people would many people would say that he succeeded moderately and that some of his second viennese um peers succeeded a little bit more but that's not a judgment so much as to say look at all these different ways that people tried to recover from the complete saturation of late chromaticism right right and and again to me it comes back the the that is such a it you may it may not seem to be but to me it is like taking the going back to we're going to look back at medieval and renaissance and we're going to take there is dissonance and there is consonance and that's it and we're going to explore now the way that these early composers did exploring of I mean, how deep did they get into the well of this is what consonance is? Well, I listened you know, to perfect really, and imperfect or whatever. Yeah, but. I listened to a really interesting um, interview with Steve Reich where he was talking about the development of his own music. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe it's 2021 and he's old news, but I thought this was right. interesting because he, he had done his early experimentation with tape loops and yeah. had this idea about phasing as a way to sort of manage the x-axis of time mm, yeah music. and you think about like time right because we're, we're sort of sculpt in music we're sculpting like this the the substrate this the material is basically overtones we're sculpting in overtones but we're doing it as we move through time and when we had functional harmony, you could speed up or slow down the tempo of a piece, but it's the it's the syntax of tonic goes to subdominant, goes to right. dominant, goes to tonic that explains how you pass through time. Right. It's like a it's like a knock knock joke or something like that, where you have a convention that's right. pretty well understood and because you have a convention you could tell it fast you could tell it slow you could kind of put a little twist on it but there's a there's sort of a there's a a basic roadmap from how you get to from, from the beginning through the middle to the end yeah and when you when you pull that apart how do you manage time well he was looking at it and saying oh i think i might be able to manage time where you're supposed to instead of feeling like time is how you get from the beginning to the end. Maybe time is something that you get lost in through this mm. mechanism of phasing. But he talked about the transformative experience he had 
discovering the music of Periton. Yeah, wow. Right? So we're, right. we're talking uh, mid-1100s. Right, Notre Dame. Notre Dame school, right? Yeah. And when you think about Reich's, and that changed everything for me, because I was familiar with quite a lot of Reich's music. One of his pieces, Tehalim, is just one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah. But when I thought about this, the, that kind of plain tone, pure style of singing, yeah, and these endless looping canons, yeah, I thought, oh my gosh, two of my favorite things just collided with each other, <laughs> and it and it made so much sense. And I, I think that a lot of composers who, you know, I feel like there's some composers who, because of their personality or maybe the moment when they drop onto the scene and history they're able to just speak the language that exists and say something cool. Right. I think Mo Mozart honestly was kind of that composer. He's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I learned the language of music and I'm going to tell you 125 really great jokes and stories in the language of music. Yeah. Totally cool. Yeah. But a lot of composers that, that emerge in those cusp moments where you have to recover from these like super saturations. Yeah. Those are the ones who have, they, they have to figure out what comes next. And I think it's usually by tapping themselves into the long story, the deep history, the, the long chain that goes all the way back to those kind of primal obsessions with consonants, dissonance. And a lot of time it's undoing the conventions of their immediate predecessors. Yeah. And I think that's what, regardless of maybe the ratio but that primal sense of consonance dissonance is still something that like people don't even realize people who don't, I, I, I think about, you know, my, my wife is now slightly more educated about music just because of being married to me. But my dad is still the one I think of when I think of, is he going to like this <laughs> when I program a piece? If, if he's coming, if, if he likes it, the general public will love it because <laughs> he likes ah, everything. Yes. But like, so I think about like, but he likes certain songs that are moving and things that are moving are because of that wonderful push and pull of consonance dissonance for the most part, you know, like, so people, whether they realize it or not, are reacting to those consonance dissonance that dance between the two and so really uh, those, those are fighting words with the bunch of postmodernists who don't care if you listen and don't think that <laughs> yeah. that overtones come from physics that connect to <laughs> human sensory experience in any in any way except a learned one i mean i mean Did you just pick a fight i think i <laughs> come at me bro like i just like okay man you can say that but there's a reason why it caught on i don't i don't know i just I'm think i'm not that... gonna come at you because i basically agree uh <laughs> yeah you know, and i was listening to a, a really great album called rivers of delight these are american folk hymns from the sacred harp tradition mm. And I, I think this was recorded in like the 60s or 70s by some kind of Sacred Harp singing group called the Word of Mouth Chorus. And I love that 
like shouty primal sacred harp singing yeah it's uh, so ever cool since, ever since i encountered it when i was a teenager and when i was listening to the the album recently maybe because of our conversations about early music i thought whoa you know this is kind of early yeah in, in that way it had you know it, it's not accompanied so it tends towards um a just intonation with these like riveting perfect consonances yeah i mean they can be weird they can because you've got men you have high voices low voices men women singing whichever part they please in whichever octave is convenient right um, but if you get sort of like a seven voice voicing of a root and a fifth stacked across the the singable human range and people are belting it with their whole souls yeah it owns you I mean, oh yeah every every bit as much as that perfect consonance at the end at the end of if you love me yeah a hundred percent i was i was listening to this and i thought man why does this just like grab my heartstrings is it the yeah. text i don't know pretty generic text sometimes but there's something about that primal consonance and dissonance the fact that it's sung by the human instrument yeah uh, you know that that is magical right yeah there. yeah and you can't i don't know <laughs> speaking to the postmodernists, I, I don't think any of which would be listening to this podcast maybe but <laughs> would if just you, say like if you are this is a safe space <laughs> yes it is but i just think that that's that's a visceral experience that yeah i don't think that you can explain away of just learned because I think you could take anyone from an Eastern culture, anyone who's not familiar with that and that open fifth, you know, perfect consonants grabs you. There's something about the way those frequencies line up that you can't get around. Well, I mean, you know, maybe music lives in the mind, but I think it lives in the body also. Oh, hundred percent. And, you know, if you have a larynx and ears and a heart, I don't think it matters who you are or what century you lived in. If you hear the, the you know, this is where physics collides with biology, right? Like if you hear yeah. human beings making sounds like that, or making sounds like the, 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 the most durable pieces from our collective history, right. you're going to feel something yeah yeah it's awesome dude what a epic sentence to end on boom mic drop bam okay andrew special that was very very like filling <laughs> i feel i feel pumped for the day yeah. yeah yeah i can go teach teenagers now you have more courage than i do Dude, I don't know. Waking up children and getting them ready for school sounds like quite the battle. So, you know, I don't know if most of our listeners know this, all seven of you, um, <laughs> but I make a mean, mean bowl of oatmeal. Ooh. Like you, you might think oatmeal is yucky or low class or that thing that you were forced to eat when you were a toddler. 
I'm telling you, your life will change when you eat oatmeal with me. Okay. One of these episodes, we will have to when we when we get the the. I I have no problems during this COVID time. I would have no problems doing these episodes with you, like in person. It's just the the hour. I'm just like, nah. I'll just nah, I'll just roll out of bed and just do this. <laughs> so <laughs> we can do an oatmeal special. But, but we is, should do an oatmeal an, special. This is an open invitation to all of our listeners to come to my house and eat oatmeal with me. And we'll have a party. Yeah. Early music and oatmeal. Early. Oh, that's it's got a, a really really kind of not so symmetrical ring to it it's true it's not musical but <laughs> but this is me uh, you know uh just putting this out there quaker oats we're looking for a commercial sponsor um and i can't think of a better audience for <laughs> your product than early music enthusiasts there isn't one because we're up early talking about things early quaker oats have been around since the quakers so clearly let's just say this episode is brought to you by quaker oatmeal <laughs> Yes. And on that note, we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday and on the Andrew Special.